So glad to hear that. <laughs> Man, we're a rough crowd this morning. You know, it is mid-February, I understand. Uh, we're a little grumpy because everyone that's not here is in Florida, and uh, we're not. So I understand completely how you feel. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 27. Love to have you follow along our scripture reading this morning. Uh, Hannah is about to read it for us in just a few moments. It's good to get a little context of where we are. You know, we've been in Matthew for quite some time. We've actually been in Holy Week for 10 months. So you you go slowly and incrementally. There's there's a beauty there. There's an opportunity there. But also, it can easily, uh, you can kind of lose your way and maybe figure, uh, miss out on where we are in the larger story. And so I thought I'd just quickly give a, a recap of where we are. Okay, it's Holy Week. Jesus is enduring a lot. He's enduring much. He's going through much sorrow and suffering beyond what we could ever imagine in human experience. He's overwhelmed by what's ahead of him. We know that for sure. He finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying intensely. He's crying out to the Father. And even at the, on the heels of that prayer, he shows himself to be focused and intent on being obedient to his Father. And so he goes forward, and he's betrayed by uh, one of his own disciples, a disciple, as we understand, that was overcome by so much uh, guilt that he uh, committed suicide. He's been arrested by the chief priests and the elders, He has been condemned as a blasphemer by the religious leaders in Israel. And as Jesus predicted, he was denied by Peter, one of the three, one so close to him, denied three times before the crowing of the rooster. And now where is he? He stands trial, again, right before the highest ranking person, leader, in Rome in that particular area, in Judea. Pontius Pilate is the governor, and he stands before him, and he is subject now to what we know is countless false accusations. And so we proceed, and we wonder, how will Jesus respond to these false accusations? Given all that he's been through, the intensity of the moment, the weight that he's carrying, once again, subject to all these false accusations, how will Jesus respond? Will he finally defend himself and save his life? You know, the answer to this question matters. It matters immensely, profoundly. It matters personally for you and for me. How Jesus responds in this moment, in the face of these accusations, profoundly and personally matters to every one of us. It's easy to engage these 
accounts as like stories of something that happened long ago. But this particular story has meaning that surpasses any of it and has profound significance for your life, your eternity, and of course mine as well. So let's listen to what Matthew tells us. Hannah Henninger is going to come forward and she's going to read from Matthew 27, 11 through 14. As he said, the text this morning comes from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, uh, beginning in the 27th chapter, the 11th verse. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. And everyone said, Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we ask that by your spirit you would speak to us. Enable us to focus and hear and to retain and also to understand the significance of what of who Jesus is and what he is accomplishing in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever experienced the phenomenon known as deja vu? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced deja vu. Maybe you're in a conversation, you're like, I feel like we've had this conversation before. Or maybe you've, you've uh, uh, had a, an interaction or experience, or some event has occurred, and you said to yourself, I'm pretty sure this has already happened. Sometimes deja vu is like, was that a dream? Have you ever had that moment? Like, what's happening? Did I dream that? Uh, I feel like this has happened before. You read this passage, you hear it, and you might feel like we've already been here before. Some of the details and, and the things that are happening, even in this short passage, you go, haven't we already had this kind of uh, experience already in Matthew? Haven't we seen this before? If you look at what's taking place, Jesus standing before a very powerful leader being questioned, and Jesus giving somewhat of an evasive, enigmatic answer, and at the same time, silent you may remember the account in chapter 26 where Jesus stood before Caiaphas, the high priest. Do you remember that? That was about three or four weeks ago. Very similar. I was joking with, with Bernie this week as he's preparing for covenant. I was like, I feel like we can prepare this message by just doing like a find and replace thing. Like just find Caiaphas and replace Pilate and we basically have the same message. It's very similar. Very similar in what's taking place. And so we find Jesus once again standing trial before a powerful earthly leader. He's being examined and he's being accused. Look at verse 1. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. Pilate is basically asking him, 
Are you claiming to be king? Are you claiming to be king? Are you some kind of threat to Rome that I should be concerned about? Are you the kind of person that's going to get a bunch of people around you and, and maybe cause some sort of disruption to the peace and order that, that Caesar has entrusted to me to maintain? What are we dealing with with you? Are you really claiming to be a king? Are you really claiming to have some kind of authority that we understand only Caesar to have? Tell us, please. Are you a king or not? This question puts Jesus in an interesting predicament, right? If, if Jesus says yes, at least in the eyes of Pilate and those there, uh, just a, 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 a simple yes, then Jesus would be seen clearly as a rebellious figure that needed to be dealt with, some one that needed to be made an example of. And in some ways, we do see that kind of unfold here in the coming uh, uh, passages. But if Jesus would have said no, then Jesus would have been denying the very identity that he had. And so Jesus is in a, uh, quite a predicament here. Uh, so what we see Jesus do is he answers in an evasive way again, doesn't he? He answers in a way that almost puts the question back onto Pilate. He says, you have said so. He does not outright deny it, and yet he does not uh, absolutely affirm it. He puts it back on Pilate. You have said so. He's very careful in his answer, and yet he does not deny what is true, nor should we hear. Let's not forget what Matthew has been trying to tell us for 27 chapters about Jesus' identity. Right? Oftentimes we find ourselves in these passages uh, just coming to grips with the identity of Jesus Christ. And here we are again. Are you the king of the Jews? What's the answer to that question? Truthfully, given all that we've learned over the last four years in Matthew, since Matthew Chapter 1, he has been called the Christ, God's promised king, understood to the Jews to be the holy and anointed ruler that would come and save his people from their enemies, right? But I don't know that. Matthew chapter 2, the visit of the Magi, what do they ask? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We've come. We've seen the star. Matthew has been presenting Jesus' identity to his readers and to us. And we can know clear as day that Jesus is the King of the Jews. It is crystal clear. He's the promised Christ. He's the promised Son of David who would come to save his people from their enemies and the one who would rule forever. Jesus is King of the Jews. Amen? Jesus is King of all. Amen? That's who Jesus is. He's God's king. He's the one that was promised. And now he is here. But understand this. You look at Jesus, and, you, and if you're Pilate, or, or some of, the, some of the, well, really the nation of Israel, and based on all your expectations about what a king is, and what a king does, and the kind of power and authority that he has and exercises, Jesus doesn't look like a king at all, does he? But there's more than meets the eye. Jesus is the king. 
even as he suffers. We're called to see him for who he is. Do you see him as the king today? Even as he suffers, he's the king. And we're called to see him as that. And called to submit to him in his rightful place in our life. He's the king. And the king is our trial. He's being questioned. He's being accused. And so we ask, how will he respond? Verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. There's a contrast there. When Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? He responds. But when he hears the accusations of the chief priests and the elders, we are told once again, he gave no answer. He is silent in the face of his accusers. And once again, we are reminded, as Matthew continues to underscore for us, the shocking truth that in the face of false accusations, Jesus is silent. He does not offer a defense. And this is all in fulfillment of Isaiah 53.7, which I will read again, even though we uh, emphasized this a couple weeks back. Jesus, Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is a king, amen? But he is a servant king. He is a servant king that is voluntarily suffering for his people. That's who Jesus is. He's come in fulfillment of Isaiah 53.7. He knows who He is. He is the King, but He's also the suffering servant. And He is now suffering. And He's embracing the plan and the promises. He understands who He is, and He is taking steps forward, not to defend Himself, but to receive what is coming to Him in this moment. To be silent. Verse 12. And that seems to conjure up some kind of frustration in Pilate. At least confusion. Shock. Right? Verse 13, Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Are you deaf, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you not hear? My father used to say, get the bananas out of your ears. Does Jesus have bananas in his ears? Is he he deaf? Does he not hear? We understand the tension in Pilate because he doesn't believe that Jesus is guilty of the things that he's being charged of. He believes he's an innocent man. And so it's, it's confounding to him. It makes no sense. Why would an innocent man just receive all these false accusations? Does he... Does he not hear? What's going on? The silence of Jesus is almost a deafening silence to Pilate. It irritates him. It frustrates him. Say something. 
defend yourself. In the way he's even saying that, or asking him this, is to manipulate, is to, is to coerce, it's to, to get some kind of response, say something. I can kind of identify with Pilate a little bit. So if you know me, you know I, I talk a lot. And sometimes I talk without thinking, and I don't know what I'm thinking unless I'm talking. That's how I process life, right? But many of you are like, well, I don't really process life like that. I process internally. This is the dynamic in my home, my marriage. I process out loud. Doreen says, I'm processing it. Wait. And her silence is like, well, I don't want to wait. It's like, you're just telling me what you're thinking. I don't care what it is. It could be wrong. It could be wrong. Just speak. You're trying to pull out some kind of response. And she says, Mike, you got to let me think. I said, why? No, I'm just kidding. You got to let me think. That's that moment it feels like for Pilate. Like, why aren't you responding to me? Why are you so quiet? What's wrong? Is he deaf? Is he like, you know, covering his ears metaphorically? Like, I'm not listening to this. I'm not doing this. What is going on in Jesus' mind and heart? We don't really know. Matthew doesn't tell us. But we can understand what it's like to be falsely accused of something and starting to process those things. Maybe, can we wonder, like, what is Jesus processing here as he hears even Pilate's question? Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Do you not hear? We can imagine Jesus processing his identity. I know who I am. You can imagine Jesus processing all their accusations internally and knowing for sure that they're not true. You can imagine Jesus maybe going through a catalog of possibilities of ways that he could prove himself in this moment and vindicate himself in this moment and show that he truly never did or said or any of those things that they're saying. He could mount quite a defense in a 100% proven way. You could imagine Jesus processing his perfection. But as we understand the way Jesus has endured this whole experience, He's processing everything in light of the purpose for which He was sent. And so, to be faithful to the Father in fulfillment of the promise for the purpose that He was sent, He gave no answer. Matthew tells us not to a single charge. Not one word, not one answer to any of the charges, no matter how false or ridiculous they were. Potentially, I would think, offensive they were. goes so much against human nature. And that's why I think verse 14 makes a lot of sense. But when he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed... This is amazing. This goes against human nature. This goes against everything that we would think we would do in response to this kind of silliness.
I think, again, personally, if I were falsely accused of things, that my impulse would be to quickly defend, to quickly argue a defense, to prove myself, if you will. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes against human nature. I mean, I don't know, maybe you've heard of this uh, famous case this week. The man's name was, is Lamar Johnson. Originally convicted of murdering Marcus Boyd in 1994. That's a long time ago. 1994, 28 years ago. And from the moment he was charged with the murder, he claimed his innocence. He denied the charges. He was convicted, sent to prison. 28 years. He fought year in and year out. Hearing after hearing, he and his lawyers fought and defended his case. And now, uh, last couple of years, the Innocent Project grabbed a hold of this because it's absolutely unthinkable, it's unjust for an innocent man to be brought up in charges and, and, and um, punished as a criminal. It's unthinkable in our justice system, and it should be. And so the Innocent Project takes his case on, and they come up with new evidence, new testimony, that shows that he's innocent. And this week, after 28 years of serving a prison sentence for a crime that he never committed, at the age of 50, I understand, if I remember correctly, he was released, and there was a great celebration, appropriately so. Because innocent people should not be charged with crimes nor suffer punishment for something they have never done. That makes sense to us, doesn't it? He fought for 28 years. And he finally got what was due to him. That's justice. Here, Jesus doesn't seem to be desiring that in the way that we would normally think. It's unthinkable. He's innocent. He's able to provide all the evidence to prove with absolute certainty that he is not guilty, but he still is silent. He does not offer a defense. And the governor looks at this, and he is absolutely amazed. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he be silent? Why does that matter for you and for me? Well, on the surface of this passage, we don't have an answer. But like all these passages in this particular section of the gospel, there's something underneath. There's something underneath that is profoundly wonderful and amazing, to use the same word. Why is Jesus silent? There's something below the surface that gives us the significance of this. Calvin, in his commentary, said this. As he thought about this bizarre, unthinkable situation, as he looked below the surface, he says this, we must attend to the purposes of God. 
It doesn't make sense. There's, what's the point? To, to be innocent and charged and then suffer the consequences of something that you have never done. What's the point? Well, the point is the purpose of God. We may not see the purpose of the story. But the purpose of God in the silence of His innocent Son is the atonement of sinners. We can't miss this. We can't miss it. What we see is Jesus atoning for our sin. Jesus is a substitute. That's what Jesus is. And that's what Jesus is doing. You see, we quote Isaiah 53.7. He was silent. But don't forget Isaiah 53.6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's our sin. It's our iniquity. It's the charges that are brought against us that He is bearing, that He is assuming. He is enduring all of this as a substitute in our place for our sin. That's what Jesus is doing here as the suffering servant. And so we're shocked and we're taken back by this moment where an innocent man stands before an earthly king. But the reality is, is that we need to be thinking about uh, guilty people standing before a heavenly king someday. And we need to have an answer to the true accusations and charges that are brought against us. And the wonderful news is, I said, I asked my wife this morning, who's home, one of our children are sick, I said, when you stand before a heavenly king and the accuser comes to you with all the true accusations of all that you've done and said in this life, what will be your defense? I asked her. And she paused for a moment. And she said this. Jesus. Jesus. I've got nothing but Jesus. Amen? He incurred the punishment for me. He took the accusations for me. My only defense is Jesus' lack of defense when He was innocent. I want you to see that. He's a substitute. He's in our place for our sin so that we, He might secure for us salvation by grace through faith in Him. See Him for who He is. See what He is doing here. See the purpose and significance behind His silence. His silence shows us His commitment to our acquittal, not His own. That's the Gospel. That's what atonement is all about. That's what Christ is doing for sinners now. And the wonderful news is, is this. There's a great exchange that takes place in this whole process. We understand our guilt. 
and our condemnation on our own in the presence of a holy God, a heavenly King. We understand this. But do we understand that Christ's silence and His willing, voluntary laying down His life becomes the basis for us receiving righteousness from Him. So that we can confidently and boldly assert Jesus in the presence of a heavenly King when we stand before Him. Substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.20 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you believe that today? We must attend to the purpose of God here. This is what he, C.S. Lewis called the great exchange. Calvin goes on to say, and I'm going to give you five quotes here. I'm going to not explain them too much. Just to underscore the beauty and the significance of Jesus being our substitute. Jesus being silent in order that we might have a defense. In order that we might be righteous. Listen to what Calvin says. Christ therefore was at that time silent. Why? That He may now be our advocate. And by His intercession may deliver us from condemnation. Amen? He was silent that we may boast that by His grace we are righteous. For the Son of God chose to stand bound before an earthly judge and there to receive the sentence of death in order that we, delivered from condemnation, may not fear to approach freely the heavenly throne of God. Jesus' silence shows His commitment to our acquittal, not His own. And He's securing for us access to the heavenly throne. He's securing for us in His silence the ability to boast in grace. To say, Jesus is my defense. He goes on to say, the Son of God stood as a criminal before a mortal man and there permitted Himself to be accused and condemned, that we may stand boldly before God. There's no other basis for you to stand boldly before God other than Jesus and His silence. He stands humbly, willingly ready to suffer the judgment in our place for our sin. Last one, Christ was silent while the priests were pressing upon Him on every hand. And it was in order that we might open our mouth by His silence. Again, we don't have a defense in the presence of a heavenly King. When we stand before God on Judgment Day, apart from Jesus, we have nothing to say. But because of His silence, 
We have something to say. We stand boldly before Him. And because of His silence, we even now can approach God in prayer to the throne of grace. We have access to Him. We need not fear approaching Him. We are covered by the blood. And it's all because He willingly stood before the false accusations and was committed to our acquittal, not His own. Amen? See the wonderful gospel. See the good news here. You don't need to have your own defense. You don't have to self-vindicate. You don't have to prove yourself in the presence of a holy and heavenly God. Christ is doing that in this passage. Christ has done that for you. You have all the vindication and proof and grace and holiness and righteousness that is necessary to enjoy relationship with God now and have hope and the expectation of standing before Him righteous and accepted when He returns. Because of Jesus' silence, His commitment to your acquittal, His laying down His life, and of course, not just the purpose of God do we think about, but also the motive of Christ. Why? It's love. Love's not in this passage, but love is soaked in this passage. Isn't it? Or this passage is soaked in love, I should say. Right? You see love. What would motivate him to be silent in the face of his accusers? The purpose of God, but also the love that he had for the Father, being willing to obey him, but also the love that he had for His people. That's us who embrace Him by faith. That's His church. He's silent in love. He's silent because He loves sinners. He's silent and He demonstrates that love in His willing uh, offering of His self. His willingness to be a sacrifice that would atone for our sins. Paul tells us, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You may wonder, does God love me? The answer is absolutely, positively, perfectly, insufficiently, and eternally, God loves you in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that this morning? Do you know that this morning? That you are loved... By God, we see His love in His silence, His willing receiving of all these accusations that were false, of His laying down His life. And again, like Pilate, we stand amazed. We stand amazed. We stand amazed. That the very God that we've offended, the very God that we have sinned against, rebelled against, is a God who comes to earth in the person of His Son, who willingly and freely gives up, voluntarily gives up His life, who endures all the false accusation, who endures the wrath of an earthly king so that we might be saved from the wrath and accusations of a heavenly king. That's the gospel. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, And wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins. 
in my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died for me. Oh, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Amen? See that today. Trust in Jesus today. Trust in the one who offered no defense in the face of these accusations. And rest in his love. Rest in his love. There's such purpose here. Such love. And it's this. That Jesus is silent. And he shows us his commitment to our acquittal rather than his own. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, there's nothing more wonderful or beautiful than the love of Christ in His voluntary, sacrificial laying down His life for us. We can't imagine how He felt being accused falsely. We would defend ourselves. And yet Christ, in submission to you and in love for us, said nothing. We praise you for him. Enable us to trust him more. Give us joy. Give us wonder. Enable us to walk in faithful submission to our King. And enable us to live in the rest and the joy of our salvation. Give us a boldness and confidence to approach you. In, uh, trusting you. And receiving all the blessings that he has given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time, once again, we approach the Lord's Supper together. It's a meal that we celebrate every week. As often as we're together, we eat this bread. We drink this cup in memory of our Lord and Savior Jesus, His atoning work, His love for us. 1 John 4, 9-10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means a sacrifice that absorbs all of God's righteous wrath against sin. That's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we remember together at this table. I'm going to invite the servers to come forward. They are going to be on each side. You are going to have the opportunity to come down the center aisle, take the bread and the cup, and return to your seat. We will partake of this meal together. If you're here today and you have placed your faith, hope, in Jesus Christ 
as your Savior. You understand that uh, you have uh, nothing, uh, no defense before a heavenly King other than Jesus. He is your King. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. And you've trusted in Him uh, and have been baptized into His church. You are more than welcome to come and participate and receive these elements uh, together with His people. Understand this, if you have more questions about what it means to know Jesus as Savior, or you believe in Him and you haven't been baptized yet, we would love to have a conversation with you and prepare you uh, and orient you to those things. But this meal is reserved for those who trust in Him and have been baptized. So, um, yeah, I'm going to pray one more time, and then I'm going to invite you to come forward. So let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your Son. We ask now that we would be able to receive Him by faith in this table, remembering Him. We pray that our faith would be strengthened and that our lives would be more reflective of what you have done for us. I pray that you would enable us to turn from our sin and to turn to you in this moment and to receive God, we give you all the praise. You deserve it, for you have done it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, please stand and come forward. Receive. First Corinthians tells us this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray one last time, and then let's respond in song together. Father God, again, we thank you. You have given us your Son as the